Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. I didn't, I didn't know those stories. Now it makes sense why Matt always cuts up all my stuff when he's mad at me. <laughs> Just jokes. Um... Yeah, so a little, I'm going to start by introduce. well, the goal of my next 15 minutes here is to introduce our second practice in a real concrete, practical form. But I think there's a handful of people in the room who maybe haven't been around a ton in the last couple of months. So I'm going to give a little recap uh, to kind of catch us up to where we're at and even, even the structure of how we're facilitating these large group gatherings with kind of some scripture teaching and then uh, pairing that with the uh, invitation to more practices. And that's a pattern that you guys will see continue in the coming months into the new year. So just a little recap of where we've been. Last summer, we had kind of our annual church meeting um, kind of as representatives of a larger core group of, of leaders in the community Matt and I shared and kind of called us back to some values, vision, structures, and even rolled out and clarified kind of a church calendar for the next year. But I think more foundationally was we gave some teachings and sermons sitting in these words of disciple in church, offering some definitions. And really simply, uh, just to repeat it again, um, the definition that we try to operate with in Karam Deo of discipleship would be someone who is prioritizing being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And, and then I gave a message the week after on church, church almost as an identity that we, almost a way of seeing ourselves as a dependent person upon others, that there is no such thing as following Jesus apart from a community that we're enmeshed and embedded in. And so in, in many ways, our definition of church as a prayerful family on mission um, is kind of the mechanism by which that central tagline of becoming like Jesus is realized in our lives. So as we, as we are ourselves spending time with Jesus and then doing what he did, giving ourselves to a certain set of practices and a way of living in this world, it's in that process that we will become more and more like him. And, and that's, that's really beautiful. We could have long, pretty, eloquent, visionary sermons on that idea. But now we've been transitioning into rolling out kind of these six practices to help kind of bring that down into the dirt. And, and it's almost, in some ways, uh, it almost feels a little embarrassing, but I think we've been in a season as not just our church, but all Christians, all churches the last few years of kind of being exposed a little and realizing that the substance and the practice of our, our faith is maybe not as deep and rooted and grounded as we had thought or hoped, almost like we'd been fooling ourselves a little bit. And so, yes, we want to be with Jesus and we want to do what Jesus did, um, but these six practices that we've introduced come from this idea of what we have observed in the Gospels of Jesus' assumed practices. We call them the Jesus assumptions. And this was an old, old sermon from years ago that we gave. And then this summer we were praying and Ton got a word about just returning to the Jesus assumptions. And so some of you guys have seen this a bunch, but repetition is part of learning. So here's the six practices that we see in the Gospels. Jesus never commands his followers to do. 
he assumes that they are already a part of your life. And to some degree, it's a bit of a cultural commentary on us as modern 21st century Christians that for most of us, none of these could be assumed about our lives. Um, and I would say that is about culture as a whole. So we spent the last handful of months from August, September, October, November talking about, or to October, talking about the practice of prayer. And then this month we're starting some conversations real practical around the practice of community. Um, and there's just some, we could list a ton of values. These are just example values that I came up with that uh, I think this practice emphasizes versus what our culture emphasizes as a value. Um, so we live in a world that's intoxicatingly steeped in individualism and autonomy. And Jesus assumes that we are living in a world and the type of people who are the opposite, who are completely, utterly, radically dependent upon the social community in which we live in. And even our state and our city, even in the landscape of America, I think is even steep, deeper in that autonomy and individualism. So, uh, just to recap, this was last month we introduced um, the practice of prayer that we're inviting the community to. It'll be two seasons a year for a month of prayer, and then uh, three times a day daily prayer rhythms. And uh, again, I'm kind of facilitating some, some updates on the website to create resources and places for people to engage when you feel ready or led to. Uh, in these practices as we roll them out. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today, but just wanted to show it again. All right, so community. I'm kind of, this is kind of a bridge teaching. I'm just introducing the foundational framework for community, and then in the coming months we'll talk about some more practicals, but I just, I just, I wish we could just sit and read out loud this book today. Uh, this is an old 20th century classic by the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this in the wake of his reflections on a, basically a live-in seminary that he started in Germany in the years building up to the Second World War and Hitler. And uh, it's called Life Together, the Classic Exploration of Christian Community. And he has these kind of classic lines uh, early on in the book where he says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community, and let him who is not in community beware of being alone. And what, what he's tapping into here, this very deep biblical idea that actually prayer and community, although they feel very different, right? Silence and solitude, solitary Jesus sitting on a mountain in the middle of the night, and then a busy extroverted dream of um, living in a house of friends, right? Those feel like they couldn't be more opposite. But at the root system, the, the foundational origin value of those two practices and their end goal is actually the same and they are intimately related to one another and um, I'll just read this Let's see where am I so I think that root system and end goal uh, that is the same is this to expose our false self and confront us with our real self so that we can begin the long process of maturity and becoming persons of love, or to say it simply, so we can become like Jesus. Or as Paul would say it, we can be conformed into the image of the Son. Um, and, and again, I don't think it's coincidence. I mean, again, we're not this smart. We're not like planning this out strategically years in advance. But I think 
It's not coincidence that these first two primary things that Jesus assumes about us as humans, of the practice of prayer and the practice of community, are also some of the core foundational values of what it means to be the church, prayer and family. And, and again, in many ways, I think those could feel polarizing, but this common root system, really, what it relies upon and what Diedrich's kind of tapping into here is this, um, some of you were there a couple weeks ago, we had a talk at the Blankenships from a guy named Jim Wilder, and Jim writes a lot about attachment and how the formation of healthy relationships and attachment is actually foundational to the process of growth and maturity in the Christian life. And I think at the core of these two practices of prayer and community are that same value, right? And Jim talks about this, how if we have not learned to form healthy, meaningful attachments from our relationship with real people, a worship set like Mia and Charlton led is not going to be a great environment for us to connect with God because we don't actually... Our brains don't know how to form meaningful, healthy attachments at all, let alone to God in a room where he's invisible, right? And we, we can't look at another face. We can't share food with one another. So, so these practices of prayer and community, I think, are the foundational assumed practices Jesus invites us into. And they share this root system and this end goal of attachment love and forming us into people of maturity that become more like Christ. Um, just to, you know, I'm just going to tout off. These are, these are some sages from church history writing and speaking into, I think, this idea of the end goal of both prayer and community being to expose our false self so that our real self can actually be present before God and others. So I'll start in the fourth century here with St. Augustine in his little book called Confessions. He says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? And then he goes on and prays, grant, Lord, that I may know myself so that I may know you truly. A handful of centuries later, a German theologian, Meister Eckhart, said, no one can know God who does not first know themselves. And of all people, uh, John Calvin, a couple centuries after that, in the 16th century, he has this kind of really, well, depending on your personality, really dry theological textbook, it looks like a phone book, called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And he opens that book with this line, how can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? Oh, sorry, sorry. No. He says, he opens that book saying, there is no knowledge of God without knowledge of self, and there's no knowledge of self without knowledge of God. And later he goes on to clarify, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these two are connected by so many ties, it is not easy to determine which one precedes and gives birth from the other. A contemporary pastor in New York named Pete Scazzaro writes, you cannot be more spiritually mature than you are emotionally mature. Christian psychologist M. Scott Peck says, mental health is a dedication to reality at all costs. And David Benner, a close friend of his who also writes, expands further, says reality must be embraced before it can be changed. So the, the whole thing I'm getting at here is that the practice of community is fundamental and essential to Christian maturity because it exposes our delusions. It exposes our idealism. It exposes how awesome and mature we think we are. Because if anyone has stuck around in a relationship for more than a month, the one common denominator we all know is that it's messy and we let people down and we both make mistakes. 
And so the spiritual practice of commitment to people and community is foundational for cultivating something healthy and substantial and lasting. Um, so I'll kind of wrap it up here, tie it together, land the plane. Um, I, I'm just going to read a paragraph out of here from Diedrich. And it's just, I mean, at least to me, I don't know. You guys can judge for yourselves. It's just savage. It is, which I don't know if Bonhoeffer had that word in his lingo, but it is just savage. Okay. So this is in a subsection, and this is not common language or practice for us as Protestants. Most of us in this room, I think, would probably identify as a Protestant Christian. Um, but he's a good German Lutheran, still, you know, a bit closer to the Roman Catholic line. And uh, this is a subsection here on confession, the practice of confession. And the subtitle is Breaking Through to Certainty. He starts this way. He says, why is it? that it's often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother or sister. God is holy and sinless. He is just and a judge of evil, the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother or sister, they are sinful just like we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to another than to a holy God? But if we do, if we do in fact find it much easier to confess our sin to God in prayer versus confessing our sin to another human, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our own confession of sin to God. Whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. And it is, is this not the reason perhaps for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness, not a real forgiveness. Self-forgiveness can never lead to a breach with sin. This can only be accomplished by the judging and pardoning of the Holy Word of God himself. So who can give us this certainty that in the confession and the forgiveness of our sins we are not dealing with ourselves, but with the living God, God gives us this certainty through our brother. Our brother breaks the circle of self-deception. And I think there's, again, he's giving a concrete, specific example of a thing that might happen in community. But I think it's tapping into this bigger, deeper reality that we desperately need to, yes, have life on life. I think that's, in many ways, where it could start is a pickleball game or leg football, but it must, community must become something more like this, right? It must become a matrix of relationships in which our true selves are not only seen and known, but they are exposed and accepted in spite of all the, like Matt said, uh, nasty things going on in his insides, right? And if we lack that presence in that network of relationships, our growth, our maturity, our health, our intimacy with God, our everything will start to kind of devolve. So the invitation, um, and this is intentionally, I'll give a caveat, this is intentionally open-ended. We're as much as possible not trying to box in even what these practices have to look like. And we also totally understand that as we give and list these six practices in the coming months and year, um, Every season of life is dynamic, changing, different pressure points, different stages of life. 
So again, as you hear us unfold these practices, this is not a religious checklist. This is almost, in a sense, an invitation for you to be intentional and reflective in each of your own seasons of life. And maybe this communal rule of life of Karam will kind of hold up something of a baseline for you to actually prayerfully be intentional with, okay? So this is no guilt, no religiosity, no shame. But our practice that we would say is essential to Christian maturity, a committed weekly rhythm where the primary reason for gathering with others is Jesus. It's intentionally open. That could, that could take a lot of forms, a lot of shapes. Here's some questions you could kind of ask. Do I have a committed, consistent space where I'm meeting with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I have a consistent space where I can live in radical openness and mutuality towards one another, where we eat food together, where we can talk about or learn from Jesus together, we can encourage one another, we could bear financial burdens together, we could share joy, we could experience pain, we could navigate changing life stages and pressures together, and ultimately we could let God expose and heal the deepest parts of our false self together. And if we don't actively have that weekly rhythm in our life? Are we in a season where we're maybe actively, prayerfully, missionally pursuing it or trying to create it or find it? And so again, this is not a checkbox because we all know, we've all probably had seasons of life where we checked the box and we were in this thing. We're in a small group. We showed up to this thing and, and we could just go through the motions and not actually show up and be present and active to that space. Um, but it is, it's, it's a hopefully a gentle confrontation to our own rule of life and an invitation more than anything. And, and, I, and just to say it really bluntly, like we have architected and built a rule of life for this church family where we only gather to do this, which is not really church, 15 to 20 times a year. And so we are almost trying to force and provide the capacity and space in each of our individual lives where we can let this practice be the main thing. This can actually take priority over everything else, because if this isn't happening, then this large group gathering and listening to Dave talk on a microphone or Matt or whoever else is up here is not going to do much in terms of transformation and growth. So we are, our community is committed to this being the primary organizing structure of the church, a weekly practice of community. And I think all of us could probably point to seasons of growth and, and learning and vibrancy in our lives that had some form of this. And again, I think on many levels, I know everyone in this room pretty well. I know that I'm kind of preaching to the choir, but I think it's important to say it this explicitly because it can just become normal to us when our lives start to fill with these types of meaningful relationships. And just one last story to close. I was, I was home this week for Thanksgiving and I was up late one night talking with my brother and his family, his five children, they had been part of this church community for a handful of years that by the outward appearance and by all metrics was like a healthy, thriving, large church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he'd been involved for a couple of years. Him and another buddy of his had started doing some men's ministry kind of outreach type stuff in the community, trying to host events and create some men's groups. And, uh, and he was recounting this story to me from a couple months ago. They were after a service, a public service like this one day, they were talking with the campus pastor who was kind of like supporting them in doing that. And, and this was not like a, 
it was like a casual anecdotal conversation. And this pastor, my brother was sharing how the men's thing they had done that Saturday had gone and giving feedback. And, uh, and he was talking about the qualitative aspects of relational health and depth and like that was happening, the vulnerability, the authenticity, the maturity that was coming out of these events. And the pastor was like, yeah, yeah, but no, how many people were there? I need to, I want to know some numbers. How many people were there? And he's hitting him, asking all these quantitative questions. And, and as if it was like totally normal and everyone agreed, he was like, oh man, well, that's really cool. Cause I, I know you guys are so into that, like discipleship and formation stuff. That's awesome. But you know, ar around our community here, the real way we measure success is just number of people in the seats and how big the offering was each week at the event. And he said it like it was totally normal. And I don't share this story to, to criticize or judge that church, but I say it because to me it's a wake-up call that this is not actually necessarily normative or common. And if you are the type of person who thinks it is, I think it's all that more important that you don't take it for granted and you realize that people desperately need this. And I would guess most of us have two or three things in our lives and every week that we're already doing that actually fit this description, but are we even naming it an intentional, are we stewarding it in the, in, to get the potential that's, that's in it? Um, so I'll close with uh, a line I shared a couple months back when I taught on church. Um, and then I'll say a little prayer and we'll wrap with a couple last practicals. Um, there is no maturity without intimacy, and there's no intimacy, well, I said no intimacy without conflicts, but I would say no intimacy without community. And if we are not consistently showing up and putting ourselves in these places of friction, unmet expectations, popping idealism, then our maturity will start to devolve. Um, and so Jesus, I just, I'm just so grateful to have so many friends who I can actually say I have this with. I just count it as a huge privilege. And I thank you for this room full of people who I know share that value. And I just, I just ask, Lord, would you help us see that, that it is not normal and that the world and others who are in our lives, in the orbit of our relationships right now, desperately need community. Would you give us a sense of reverence and, and joy to steward this practice and value for our own benefit and for the benefit of others? Um, yeah, and we're just so grateful, God, that we get far more than we could ask or imagine when we sign up to follow you. Thank you for the gift of people in this room and the many other faces who we could all recount that aren't here today, that have been this source of growth and life and your presence for us in our journeys. Yeah, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to multiply this, that you would multiply healthy communities centered on you in our city. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.